my guest today is Neil O'Donnell, a practicing attorney from the state of Pennsylvania, currently residing in New York City. He's the founder of Legal Scale PLLC, which focuses on the venture debt space, as well as Faraday Partners, which focuses on acquiring ground leases for cell phone towers outside of the United States. In prior years, he's worked at Davis Polk's Bankruptcy Law Group, the Equity Derivatives Group, and has experience with two financial advisory firms and an intellectual property accelerator. Neil is quite honestly one of the smartest people I've ever met and a walking encyclopedia of investment knowledge. Neil, welcome to the Circle of Confidence podcast. Happy to be here, Benton. Thanks so much. This is awesome. It's great to have you on. So Neil and I met probably close to, to a year and a half to two years ago through my blog on circleofcompetence.co. And I believe, I believe Neil just reached out with maybe a couple links or something that we kind of connected on and, and we began sort of the conversation which developed into a friendship over honestly just our, our passion, our interest for investing. So Neil, why don't you give us your, you know, the two minute background, the sketch of your background and how you got to where you are today. Sure. I, right before I do that, I just want to say, I, you know, we, we absolutely met through the Circle of Competence blog. Investing can be a really lonely road. And so when you find somebody that's putting together an awesome aggregator, that was literally my entire reading for the next week. I glommed onto that. I read it for a series of months. And then, you know, like, like you said, maybe sent a few links that were part and parcel of, of what, what you were writing about and got a few hat tips. And then we actually got to do some articles together too. So super excited to be here. Absolutely loved uh, Nathan Reed and Ryan Reeves podcast uh, so far and, and very happy to be the third person on the show. I mean, it's, I, 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 when you get Ray Dalio in six months, I'll be like, how did Neil O'Donnell get on this? But it's, it's very super exciting. I did fail to mention, Neil and I did write a pretty lengthy article on the rise and fall of WeWork that I will link to in the show notes. Uh, I'm pretty proud of it. I know Neil is, and he did some some really cool work showing how the yield curve of real estate works and how to think about that. So I'll link to that in the show notes. Awesome. Okay. So, so then without further ado, just a quick set of my background. So first off, I'm a trained engineer. It went to Johns Hopkins, got my bachelor's and master's in biomedical engineering with this focus on biomaterial research. I really liked that work, uh, but also just in order to get a PhD, you need to do something that's you know, 10 to 15 years away from touching patients. I initially went to Hopkins because two of my grandparents died from cancer. So definitely wanted to do research work and found that Hopkins was an excellent environment. Have an enormous respect for my friends like Josh Budman. Um, that built businesses. Josh Budman actually just sold his business, Tissue Analytics. So super exciting. But ultimately, you know, for me, I always wanted to combine that with uh, law and business and investing because those were, you know, three of my passions. So from there, went to Cornell Law School, uh, where I met my my lovely wife, and absolutely loved Cornell. I really thought it was, you know, for me, just a place to be. Got my JD and MBA, so it was really sort of a combination and exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my career. Can't speak more highly to either the business or the law school, and. In Cornell Law, Cornell uh, Law, I met a lot of my friends that you know now live in New York. You really can't, I don't know, swing a dead cat without hitting at least two no- Cornell lawyers here in New York City. And so, you know, first worked at Davis Polk exactly as you laid out. Worked in the bankruptcy group and the equity derivatives group, and then sort of serendipitously met uh, Will Thorndike, the author of The Outsiders, who seeded my search fund called Faraday Partners. And we, we can get into that more later, but the, it was a telecom focus. We were buying the land underneath cell towers in South America. I moved to South America for a little bit less than, than a year, specifically to Uruguay to start the company. Um, we built the company, uh, liquid, then 
liquidated some of the lands. I liquidated uh, Will's portion so that Faraday became a single member LLC that I continued to run. And we're still you know, collecting tower rents in, in Uruguay even now, which is pretty exciting. Uh, we have a great team there, um, including uh, Fernando Mazzoni um, and uh, the his law firm, which, which has really done an extraordinary job for us and continues to do a really good job. And then when I came back, I had met a lot of people in the alternative debt space um, because I was I was reaching out for alternative debt in order to build my uh, my company, Faraday. And so reached out to those same people, um, including Blair Silverberg, and just said, you know, I know that you're in the venture debt space and I actually have a lot of facility there. And so for my company, Legal Scale, um, we were able to recruit some initial clients starting, I guess, February of last year. And now with, call it 18 months of operation, you know, we have a great client base um, and we're really focused on the venture debt space. And we sort of have this hybrid role of GC for hire for like newly operating funds. Um, and then for funds that are really doing a lot of transactions work, a more external facing role of, of creating and um, creating credit agreements and then carrying the, the credit agreements out or, or otherwise amending them. So it's it's really just been phenomenal. And the, the, the very la last thing to note here is that there was no plan, right? Like I just sort of like came in each day and, and steered the ship. While it looks great on, on paper, you know, I, I just, I'm super appreciative to everybody that, that provided that helping hand, whether it was Will, or or our, our client base more, more broadly. I mean, I just I feel extremely lucky. Or even just you know reaching out to, to you, Benson. I mean, it's really been a great ride so far. Well, that's the beauty of the 21st century, man. Is we've never met in person, and yet we've become friends over our obvious, obviously our commonalities, our interests, um, our passions for finance and business. I certainly don't have two other circles of competence in law and engineering like you do, but. And I hear your point on just steering the ship. That's a great point that I think Munger and Buffett really hit home is that they don't have a plan when they go to work every day. They just go and do the most rational thing. So I love that point. I want to get into to Faraday and how you met Will Thorndike. For those of you who aren't familiar with Will Thorndike, he wrote one of my favorite books on entrepreneurial investing, which is what I would like this podcast to focus on. It's sort of the nexus between the operator and the investor. And so I want you to kind of give us that backstory and, and what got you interested to make the switch from corporate law to entrepreneurial investing and, and how did you meet Will? Yeah, right, and moving, moving to South America, which is sort of like a random. Uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, Will's book meant an, an enormous amount to me. You know, the, the Outsiders, I read it when it was on Warren Buffett's list of, of top reads, which I think was on in 2013 or 2014. Um, I, I read it then, and then I reread it when I was taking the CFA, and then I reread it again when I was taking the CFA level three. So, and each time I actually extracted an enormous amount. Um, the last time I especially focused on very close read of Henry Singleton's chapter and John Malone's chapter. Um, and John Malone really became a, a template for Faraday Partners broadly. Um, you know, Will, uh, so within his book, the, the key idea, I, I, li I like the book a lot because unlike other books like like Money Masters, which is a phenomenal read, this was a great template that gave you one definitive strategy to to deploy capital. And so unlike reading about Stanley Druckenmiller or George Soros, who I have enormous respect for, but don't really align with my investing methodology, you know, for, for Will and, and for the outsiders, the, the key idea was that good capital allocation looks like value investing. And so... You know, that was a really powerful principle to me, um, and, and one that when you look at eight those eight different CEOs in good industries, right? Like uh, cable has been a great industry, which has made a lot of millionaires for, for John Malone, or for General Dynamics in, in 
or for you know worse industries like you know take take movie theaters for example um, and general cinemas. The the key idea was just even within these these worse industries, pr- applying the same principles was was a great tool to ex- to create and extract long term wealth. And you know I, the way I, I've summarized it to other people, including my family members, is that um, you know going to to Legally Blonde at a at a point. You know, there's there's a point where she says, you know, the hair of the, the rules of hair care are, are simple and finite. Um, you know, Will's book is really that the, the rules of capital allocation are simple and finite as well. There are really three ways to bring in capital to a business, and you know, four or five ways to really deploy it, and that's and that's it. You know, so in 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 each case, you're looking to just raise capital from the cheapest way possible, and then deploy it um, into the the highest return method possible, and that provides economic value add that accrues to both yourself as a founder and to your broader investor base. So I, I fully bought into that. I, I drank the Kool-Aid. Um, and then upon, after my, my third read of the book, I said, wow, like I, I had these two lingering questions that I wanted to ask Will. Um, so I, I wrote him an email and, and by, by looking up his, his, his email address. And then he was such a gentleman, he actually went back and he, he called me. And then we, we, from there, started a relationship where for maybe six or nine months after that, we did at least a weekly, weekly call to just discuss what I was learning, what I was thinking about. And then became more and more about the search fund that we thought about forming. That's awesome. That's a great story. And uh, do you remember what, what the questions were? Yeah. So I, I wanted to, I specifically wanted to ask first and foremost, so, so Warren Buffett was, was one of the eight CEOs and I think he's actually the last CEO. He's, he is interesting because he actually is probably the most deviant in terms of the model that, that will presents. Um, all the other CEOs were very inclined to buy back their own stock, which Obviously, Buffett is now doing, but but started late relative to the, the, these other CEOs, um, and is and is still relatively parsimonious in his purchases of Berkshire's ac- equity. You know, he always looks for other opportunities. Uh, con- conversely, people like Henry Singleton bought back as much as forty percent of their own shares, right? So it was it was almost like an, an inverse LBO or something. And so, but uh, so I asked him as applied to Buffett was the reason that his strategy worked and that he could be so much more focused on external investments uh, because he had frozen capital in the form of Berkshire Hathaway. Um, and if he had run a hedge fund, would, would, would that have not have worked? And his, his answer to that was, was you know, almost definitely yes. You know, and beyond that, Buffett was helped because both he, his wife, and, and Charlie Munger owned a substantial portion of shares and therefore exercised negative control. So there was no chance of them getting voted out. So they both had frozen capital and capital, which, which they controlled in, in the form of, of, of good governance. And then second, uh, so and I, this is like, that's, that's relatively interesting. We could think about that a little bit more because I, I, I think about that model a lot. And then when you think about somebody like Brent Bishore, I think that he set up this great model that actually takes all the all the advantages in terms of tax and otherwise in terms of an LP and has applied those has applied those while keeping the frozen capital principle, but because he's locked up capital for fifteen or twenty five years, um, but he you know he's still providing the Buffett model just with a much better tax wrapper and governance wrapper for the LP. Um, and then the, the other question that I asked was you know what's what's outsiders two you know this is sort of like backward looking and, and at that point was you know thirty years in the past now, probably 35. So I was like, you know, what, what are companies that are that are doing this now? And he gave me two names, Constellation Software, which was a great purchase. And I thank Will for that. And also Transdime, which which has been similar. It's been it's been affected by COVID. But you know, really Constellation Software gave was, was a great read. And it, the 2015 president's letter gives a great understanding of high performance conglomerates or HPCs, as Mark Leonard calls it. And like that's really, I think, I think that that letter is is the beginnings of Outsiders 2.0, and I would be you know privileged if I got to study that and, and maybe do it. We, we could we could do an article on that after this. No, we we are due for another in depth article. And actually, so okay, so to summarize the two questions, 
The first one was about the difference between the structures of these entrepreneurs and these investors, their capital. So what terms did they have around the capital? And to your point, you know, someone like a Brent Beshore that raises permanent, permanent equity, pun intended, versus a hedge fund that is able, well, that may be forced to redeem capital at an inopportune time. You know, Warren Buffett obviously owns a substantial majority, uh, controls a substantial majority of Berkshire, and so it's permanent in nature. He's never going to have that capital sort of stripped from him at the worst possible time. And so that was the first question. And the second question, remind me, what was the second, what was the second question again? What is, you know, Outsiders 2.0? Like what companies are currently carrying out this methodology? Right. So forward-looking, where where should you be looking and and so how did you get to the the ground lease model like where did that shake out as the as an outsider 2.0 company right so so exactly as you point out benson you know we ultimately landed on this real estate focused approach of what's known as cell carrier ground lease aggregation break that down for us yeah exactly right like i, I always use these five dollar words um so the, the the key idea is and this is and this has been done by companies like um, Unison in the United States. Just go to the cell. Just first go to the cell tower and then buy the land underneath it from the existing, you know, farmer or other landowner that that controls these these plots that the cell towers are based on. Um, so it's been done in the, in the United States. It's also been done by uh, companies like Associated Partners or Associated Partners Wireless, sometimes called APWIP, um, outside the U.S. and in, in places like Ireland, uh, Australia, Turkey. And you know, I guess to, to take a step back, I was really, I, I first had had the first time I'd ever heard Will's voice was on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's, and that's like the best podcast. I'm a big podcast listener, and I'm, I'm absolutely I've added Circle of Competence podcast to to my weekly listenings, which which is great because I was in, in in these COVID times running out of podcasts generally. But in this podcast with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, Patrick wisely asked, you know, what was your top CEO industry matchup going forward? Um, so at this point in 2015. And Will said, John Malone, who's, again, my, my favorite chapter, my, my favorite capital allocator in, in the Outsiders book, The Cable Cowboy, and we could talk about more about that, running a cell tower company. And so within my second email to Will after asking these first two questions, I actually sent along this executive summary that talked about how I would run a cell tower company. Every word of that was wrong. But, you know, Will was such a gentleman that he considered that and said that there were some, some, some good ideas to develop in that. Um, and that actually was the first conversation around the search fund that we ended up funding together. Talk about a life-changing cold email. Yeah, That's exactly, awesome. right? Or a series of them. And then the second time that we ever talked was on my birthday in, in 2017. Um, so it was, you know, it was super, super exciting. And uh, I was, you know, I, I really liked corporate law, but I wanted to get back to the investing element too. So it was just perfect timing for me. Yeah. I So I, I'm a big fan of Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast as well. And, and I've listened to that interview with, with Will Thorndike multiple times. And he talks about several different aspects of search fund businesses that he likes, two of which are high recurring revenue businesses and high returns on incremental capital. So talk about how you, well, he delivered a great idea in the fact that he actually said it on the podcast, but, but talk about how you think about cell phone tower aggregation, lease aggregation as a business model from the economics, from the competitive standpoint just just talk about it from a high level business model standpoint yeah perfect and and i think that that's really one that, that ties in extremely well with, with the faraday model and then two you know it really is a model that i've also seen my, my clients increasingly adopt you know it, even just to take one one step back 
honestly, since since Ben Graham, there hasn't been a lot of new ideas in the investing space, right? Like people don't give Ben Graham enough credit for in 1932, in the very trough of the worst recession ever, worst depression ever, excuse me, you know, really formulating ideas around value investing for the first time, right? It, it, it's, it's sort of shocking that somebody could could do that after they had taken mammoth lot, you know, Ben Graham started, really deployed all of his capital in, I think, 1929, six months into 1929, 1930, um, and took whopping losses, and then wrote Security Analysis and the Intelligent Investor, which is just fantastic. And, and he really deserves enormous credit for even just having the temperament and emotional qualities to, to deliver that. Um, and there really hasn't been a lot of new ideas since. You know, he, he discovered America and he's Columbus, and maybe since then Buffett's discovered I don't know South America, and and you know I'm hoping to discover Newfoundland or, or some or some small niche for myself. And so, you know, like I think that one of the new ideas that that Will is really hitting on in, in, in his discovery is that these businesses that have high visibility, high quality cash flows, um, in in the terms of regularly re- recurring revenue, have greater debt capacity, and by virtue of that, can take what is often the cheapest source of capital into the business in the, in the form of, of issuing debt. And and, be, and because of that, they have greater economic value added. The businesses that have to rely on equity for research and development or, or other or other uh, initiatives that, that don't have that same sort of predictable revenue stream. And so, you know, and, and even to that point now, when, when people ask Charlie what, what he would do if he were a young entrepreneur, he always says you know, he, he would start a SaaS business or something else with really great internet business with, with very high recurring revenue. So it's like this fascinating, it's this fascinating idea. And so, the major benefit for cell for cell tower companies is that they have one often investment grade tenants. For for myself, I'm um, in South America. That was subsidiaries of Telefonica um, and of of Claro, uh, which is, is a major uh, telecom company in, in South America and, and Central America. Um, and these companies have operated for you know 30 years very profitably, and and they're your tenants. Were they na- are they nationally owned or are they privately owned? They're, so, so both of these are are privately owned companies. Uruguay has has one one public telecom company called Antel, and it, it has a mobile subsidiary called Ancel. But we didn't we personally didn't target those those towers when, when when we were down there with the idea that they would. There's fewer restrictions around eminent domain, and so we didn't want something that as it became more valuable was more at risk for for taking certain of the of the of the lands. So we really just focused on on privately held lands, which when it's it's a really great point. I mean. Importantly, people like Mark Leonard at Constellation Software have done amazing businesses that that cater for vertical market software that cater to government companies. So I, I have no disposition against government companies, but just when it came to land in South America, it seemed like a, a greater delta and a greater risk. As applied to as applied to my, to my business, the other thing that that you that you mentioned and it really is the other part of cell tower magic, if if that exists. And Mark Ganzi has put out some articles on cell tower magic generally. Um, is great incremental uh, revenue, great incremental profits. So when you put the tower on the ground. And there's one tenant on it, and this really holds true in a lot of different geographies, not not universally. You get about an, an eight to ten percent return, which is which is very good, right? I mean, it, it's 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 a good return. People will be happy with that in the real estate space or anything else. Unleveraged, right? Un- unlevered return, exactly. Yeah. So no debt. You buy it all cash. You're going to get potentially eight to ten percent clipping fees. Yeah, exactly. Two hundred thousand dollars, two hundred fifty thousand dollars in the ground, and then on that two hundred thousand dollar investment you're going to get $16,000 per year. So are you putting the cell tower, that is your capital investment? So with respect to Faraday, it is not. Um, So this this is just talking about the cell tower dynamics generally. Going back to your, I think, question, two questions ago, the reason that I really started a ground lease aggregator was, you know, Will and I were talking about the cell tower business being one of the best in the world. But in order to do that in the United States, we would probably need very much in excess of $100 million. 
And uh, in South America, you still probably, even in a country like Uruguay, at least 30, probably 50 million US. That seemed like a lot for a 25 year old to raise. So I, I uh, but ultimately opted for what was a much less capital light uh, business that still gave me access to this adjacency, which was cell carry ground segregation. So to your point, we weren't putting any capital into the ground in terms of creating a national uh, infrastructure in order to distribute cellular spectrum, but we're still getting access to that same high quality revenue. And in, in Uruguay, uh, one of the reasons that I chose that geography was that the cell towers, because Uruguay is a very small country, were carrier captive assets. So they were actually owned by the telecom companies versus in the United States, those are owned by Crown Castle International, American Tower, SBA, and seven other small private carriers. It's so interesting because in the US, to your point, the, the the cell phone companies, that the phone companies will lease, I guess, bandwidth from the tower companies and the tower companies will then lease from the ground owner. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's so as applied to, I mean, that's exactly right. And then as, as applied to the tall towers that you see on the side of the road, it's really just vertical real estate. Each one of those is just its own, you know, you can have five or, or six positions on a tower. Often the anchor tenant will get the first top two positions because they, they've contracted first and they actually get a little bit of a price discount relative to the people that co-locate on that same tower. And so it's they're literally just getting, a, you know, it's like getting the, the penthouse suite on, on, a, on an apartment building or something. It's sort of interesting. And, and then to your point, you know, there are 10 to 30 year leases for each one of these for each one of these. So, so you have very high visibility, very high quality revenue. And it's often a non cancelable contract and certainly very high switching costs, especially in the, in the United States. So because of the um, Telecom Act in the, of 1996 and then some acts since then, the you know, major, major benefit is that you have to co-locate. So for these tower companies, they can just build, build one pole in the ground. And then it's not like AT&T can go right across the street. Um, you know, there's an increasing amount of build to relocate within with, within the tower space generally. And, and that's been the depressing rents. But overall, as, as applied to the macro ta- macro tower sites, it remains an excellent business, and returns are often you know in excess of, of 30% for a tower that has all you know now now three carriers because uh, Sprint and, and uh, T-Mobile have combined. So it's it's just a phenomenal it's it's a phenomenal space, and the co-location revenue, to your point, it comes in at, at an 80 to 95% gross margin. Um, so it's incredibly profitable. I mean, as applied to that third or fourth carrier that that you add to a site, there's literally tens of thousands of dollars of, of expense, which is immediately made up in the form of you know, that, that first rent check from that you know, T-Mobile or, or Verizon. Does that accrue to the ground lease or does that accrue to the tower owner? It's a great question. So as applied to my ground leases, they, they, we, we were definitely, we were targeting leases that had a percentage of, of revenue um, or, or at least a escalator that was higher than the inflation rate so that we're, we're accruing net profits over time over the course of a 30 year lease. And then in the United States, it's increasingly com- it's increasingly common, and I would really recommend that anyone that has a cell tower site, you know, please, please approach me or others with it within the space. Um, I, I can, can connect you to others that were extremely helpful to me, um, and that that get a you know twenty to twenty five percent revenue share, um, and so they they can stand alongside the cell tower company and extract those additional profits. Very interesting. So so now we're getting into a space that I know a little bit about which is real estate. Talk about the deal structures when you're structuring a, you know, a, a buyout of a ground lease. Sure. So, so in terms of, in terms of how, how this works, you know, the one first thing is that, well, land itself, if you, if you own, if you own the dirt, it is not depreciable. If you, if you have a, uh, if you yourself are leasing the grounds from the land owner, your lease, your, your lease. So, so I would have a lease to the ground owner and then I would be leasing the space to the, to the telecom company 
or the, or the cell tower, um, that that lease itself amortizes, right? So it doesn't depreciate. But you can, if I have a 30-year lease, I can take you know 0.33 or 0.033 of that per year in that same form of a tax shield. So it's it's pretty helpful. And at a, even with straight line uh, amortization, it works a lot the same way of, of depreciation. And in fact, when I was in Uruguay. We had a combination of, of two different contracts that effectively allowed for accelerated am uh, amortization. So it worked a lot like accelerated depreciation on the site, which was which was really phenomenal. It was, was super helpful for, for tax purposes. Um, again, John Malone is is a master of this and really did great work at TCI and to a lesser extent Liberty in terms of creating these amazing depreciation uh, schemes that 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 helped shield all of TCI's cash flow from the time that he took control of TCI until he sold it to AT&T for over $60 billion. And, and because of interest interest shields and depreciation shields, he didn't pay any money to the government from the late 1970s until he sold uh, TCI in the late 1990s, despite creating you know, over virtually $60 billion of shareholder wealth. He didn't, he didn't share any of that with the US government, which was, which was a, a pretty phenomenal uh, tax system. Um, we, we have not been able to achieve the same um, because we're not as smart as John Malone and we, we don't have the same business, but, but you're absolutely right. So. For, so one of the reasons I was so interested in getting alternative debt and reaching out to alternative debt providers was within Uruguay and and, and especially within the United States, there is a benefit in the form of paying interest expense. And, and John Malone was famous for saying that interest, it's better to pay interest than to pay taxes. Um, so you know we rented, we, we paid that rental cost of capital, we brought cost of, that cost of capital into the business. And then we were able to buy additional cell tower lands, which helped us scale more quickly. And then when we're paying back that interest, we're, all, we're shielding a certain percentage of our profits um, or of our EBITDA from from paying income taxes, but in both jurisdictions. And so, is that was super helpful. And then again, just structuring these leases so that we didn't own the dirt in all but but one site was also very helpful, just in terms of creating a more of a the, the EBITDA. We didn't get to use the D, but we got to use the the I and the A in in terms of uh, in terms of shielding taxes. Okay, so before we go on to John Malone, one of our favorite investors, uh, one thing that we definitely have in common. So just to make sure that we have the mechanics right, so you are leasing the land from the landowner and then releasing, gathering a spread, uh, releasing it to the cell tower company. That's that's exactly right. So so the way so we were always we weren't doing any sites on spec, right? So we would reach out to the to the landowner. Um, we would often target cell towers that were coming off of lease within the next two years, and we would say to the landowner, let us take the existing lease from you. Um, we're going to step into your shoes with respect to that lease. And so, and we would, we would amortize that lease at a faster basis than the rest of the lease. We, we would assign more value to that, to that initial leasehold. Then for the, for the freehold interest that wasn't leased up with respect to the land, we would step into the landowner's shoes with respect to the, the future negotiation. So if we got a tower and we had two years on it initially, we would, we would purchase the tower typically between 5.5 and 7x um, the ground cash flow, pay that to the landowner, for the next 30 years, and then we would be able to depreciate that at you know at a straight line basis again 3.33 percent per year, which which we were often able to, to beat at least slightly for the initial for the initial lease lease term, and then we would for the next so after those first two years expired we would do two additional negotiations and the entire time we're collecting that steady ground cash flow from the cell tower. Wow! So you were basically renegotiating the lease on behalf of the on behalf of the the, the original landowner, but you your the value was accruing to to Faraday, that value accruing to Faraday at least at least because we had such a, a, a long freehold interest, right? We we had a lot of the equity, um, at, at least as applies to right now. 
know, when my you know kids are going to college or something else, I, I think that that will shift over, right? And we'll have much more. Well, who knows what college is going to look like in thirty years? That's it. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, when when they're going to uh, Code Academy, um, the, the, <laughs> which is which will then be a four-year program to Google University. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Singularity or anything else. Okay. So before we move on to John Malone, I do have one more question. I've gotten really interested in solar development recently because it has the same, I don't want to say same, but very similar characteristics as a cell tower lease. So you have the landowner, often a farmer that's very rural in nature, close to a substation, be, being like a, transi- a transmission line for high voltage elect- uh, electrical lines. So proximity to that. And typically they're getting huge step ups in their in their lease income per year as long as they, you know, lease this land, this acreage to like a solar developer that just, you know, plops down a bunch of uh, of solar panels uh, as long as it obviously has a good has the potential to generate a lot of energy from that from that area. I'm just curious, have you done any research into the parallels between the cell mo- the cell tower model and this the solar panel and the solar development industry? It's funny this this came up organically. So so one of my really good friends um is in the alternative energy space, Duncan Campbell. Um and, and I've known him since actually from elementary school. It's sort of funny. And then our, our paths are always crazy. He, he was a he's he's an amazing en- engineer. Um he went to Temple University. He's been in the space for a long time. He actually told me to buy Sunrun stock, call it fifteen months ago, and I and I and I ignored him um, at at my own risk. I mean, I, the the major the major limitation I think is just it it, it goes it goes back to, to to this idea and then to um to some sort of like basic venture ideas more broadly. But the customer acquisition costs is always in flux with respect to this industry. So I think that the one the weak the weakness of of Tesla just just in respect to this space not not overall obviously Tesla is doing extremely well at least as a stock overall. But the but but for Sunrun to, to consolidate the space and potentially bring down to bring out down the acquisition costs and then to have solar panels also getting cheaper, you can see a position where this industry gets a lot better over time. It hasn't been a value creating industry overall, and I think that the market is increasingly pricing it as a as a value creating industry versus a value destroying industry. I, I do think that that you come to a position with with cheaper solar panels, um, which which relies on trade, right? So so there there is some underlying risk with, within that, and then with respect to Greater consolidation and, and greater customer awareness, reducing reducing CAC or customer acquisition costs. That this becomes like a really really interesting industry because the contracts are pretty phenomenal. Once once you get them in place and once the solar towers, once once the solar panels produce, it looks a lot like a two a two x co-located tower. It doesn't have the phenomenal returns of a four x co-located tower, but there aren't any of those in the United States anymore industry anyway. With with the consolidation of T-Mobile and Sprint. Let me clarify too. I am interested in being the landowner just like you are versus being an actual solar developer because of the the nature of the utility industry and the energy industry and dealing with all of that what i know is real estate and i know that farmland at least in eastern north carolina goes for x and solar leases go for 5 to 10x per acre yeah i mean i I really do from that from that perspective. One one thing I'd say is like if you look at a company like Landmark Dividend, um, I think that they've or Landmark Infrastructure Fund LP, of which the manager is, is Landmark Dividend, they are in the cell tower space. The billboard, uh, the billboard. So so when when I say cell towers, they do carrier ground segregation just like I did as applied to the United States. They pay much higher multiples. There's the billboard space, which which they're also in, and they have a 
presence in the United States, in, in the UK, um, which is a great market for them. And then they're also in the renewable energy space. And so, I, I mean, I think that they were smart enough to be in this space very early on. They have some substantial builds, not just in, in the US, but also in Australia in the form of their subsidiary is LDC out in Australia. And I mean, I think that they hit on the same sort of economics that you're discussing. I mean, the key idea that Will and I always talked about is, you know, if you could get a, if it's a leverageable asset like land, you typically want like a six or even eight X return. I mean, if it can be highly leveraged is, is an, is an excellent return, especially when interest rates are as low as they are now. So, I mean, I, I, I tend to think it's, 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 it's a really great build. I mean, if you're buying land on spec, the only thing that you have to arbitrage is just a chance that they build on somebody else's land, right? And then the, the switching costs, because within your, your rent negotiation, you want to make sure that the nice thing about it, cell towers, it's really hard to build, especially in a place like Uruguay, where there's steel tariffs and it's there's not as big a labor force in order to, to build new towers. So if, if they're going to try to take it across the street, it, it's probably easier for a solar panel than a, a cell tower, but I'm not, I don't know enough to be intelligent about it or, or to even opine. So I, I mean, those, those are the, the things that I really think about, but if all those things are there, I think that, that it's, it's, it's an excellent opportunity. And it's also a place where you can do good by doing well. I mean, I, I absolutely believe in distributed energy systems and, and having uh, solar panels. It's, it's, it's actually, one of the things I think about a lot is just with all these zero marginal cost panels, I actually had a, like a, a small company that, that looks at this called Optic, but just there are times now in, in Hawaii, for example, where energy prices literally go negative every day, right? Because they, they start off positive with coal and other production, and then it becomes incredibly cheap to produce power once, you know, turbines are spinning or, or the sun is shining. Um, and then they become, again, positive at the end of the day. But it's, it's going to be, you know, it really is, it's a really fascinating space where how, what sort of renewable energy proliferation can we get to um, is, is an open question. But those are all macro. Uh, the, the micro here, I think, I think works really well. And, and as a landowner, you, you can do extremely well by just buying the panels versus contracting the company like Sunrun, because I do think that they're increasingly getting very good returns. And I think as a landowner, you have no CAC, right? The CAC is zero. You just have to sign up. Well, that's that's kind of why I'm interested in, in the actual land ownership piece of it, because you feel like you are, instead of farming sweet potatoes or tobacco or whatever you might have been farming originally, you're farming solar energy, right? So you're providing a, a good service for, for society without having to deal with the operations of it, the competitive negotiations with the utilities and selling into markets and the volatility of effectively a commodity. I mean, a commodity. So anyways, let's move on to one of our favorite investors, John Malone. And talk about the cable cowboy and why you were drawn to him. And what are some of the lessons that you've taken away from his story that you've tried to apply in your own personal investments, Faraday or, or otherwise? That's, that's, a, that's a really great question. I mean, so I, one, I, I read The Outsiders and then there's another book, Cable Cowboy, which is really sort of like that fourth chapter of Outsiders across, I don't know, 350 pages. And it, it's both, both are great reads. I think there's, there's, there's a lot to talk about for, for John Malone generally in terms of just, so one, when, when TCI, the company that, that Bob Magnus uh, started and then John Malone took over in, in, I think when he was 29 years old after working as a consultant, first off, John Malone wanted to run his own shop, right? He had an incredible job offer to be a consultant. They literally got him a, a limo and he would have had his own driver and everything else, but he didn't want any of the trappings of wealth. Instead, he wanted to run his own business. And that was, he didn't get stock options or things like that. Like until I think the 1980s, he owned less than 1% of TCI himself. Um, he just really wanted to run a wealth producing company. So I think that one is just, he, he really wanted, he was an engineer by training. He actually went to Johns Hopkins University where he got his PhD and he studied, he wrote his thesis on financial engineering was, was sort of his project. And he looked at specifically at if he were running AT&T, how to optimize their capital structure. And 
just like Will Thorndike would tell him 30 years later, he recommended, or I guess in that case, 50 years later, he recommended that AT&T take out a whopping percentage more debt and do a, a leveraged dividend to its shareholders because they had such a monopoly. So he was onto these things really early on, even before he started running any business. Second, when TCI went public, it, it, it went public at a whopping 17x revenue. So its debt to revenue was 17 times. It just, I, I think about this a lot because it's how did he manage to increase the revenue sufficiently that they could even pay down debt? I mean, this, this was in times when we had 3% interest rates, right? Like the 70s and 80s were 6% at least plus extremely high debt, right? And so it's public at 17 times revenue is just, uh, I, I think about it a lot just because like he was obviously just a Goliath in terms of managing a capital structure and managing it efficiently. And then, you know, as applied to the principles that I really extracted or, or how he, he runs his day-to-day -day life, one, like Henry, Henry Singleton or, or Warren Buffett that we've mentioned, he didn't have a long-term plan, right? He just really evaluated his options and then always looked for where he could raise capital the, the, the cheapest or deploy it the most profitably, right? And, and so, you know, that was in recurring revenue businesses in, in the form of cable and also businesses where he didn't overinvest in the form of R&D or CapEx into the existing systems. Instead, he just found it cheapest to acquire new cable companies and take on those monopolies in those local jurisdictions. And so by virtue of that, he made TCI from a regional player into you know, the biggest cable company of its time and, and the best wealth producing engine really ever. Um, and, and one that made many, many millionaires and, and, and billionaires in the form of John Malone and Bob Magnus. And then second, you know, he, so just, just that he really latched onto this wealth engine. He was incredibly intelligent. He had a single mission and a single focus, which I think is, is incredibly important for an investor. I, re I heard your interview with, with Ryan Reeves, where he talked about, you know, if you're complex in the beginning, you're going to be overly complex or too complex eventually. John Malone kept it simple at, throughout the entire time. And even though he had this mammoth intellect, he didn't over-engineer. And one last point with respect to that is that, you know, he was a math genius, but when he looked at acquisitions, he didn't break out Excel, even in, in the later years when that was available. Instead, he just said, you know, I, I don't want to use these tools that would allow me to overcomplicate, over, over curve fit uh, any, any solution. And instead, he always wanted to use a pencil and paper because if he felt like he, if he wanted if he wanted to break out the other tools, the returns were too tight and he would just walk away. So his too hard pile was, was you know, a, a heaping pile and, and the deals that he wanted to do were screaming buys from from the get go. You know, it's 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 hard to have that level of discipline. Yeah, that's that. That is a great point. That last point, especially as information flow has only increased, you know, in our lifetime, really in the last decade and a half. I think one of the biggest competitive advantages for an investor is that is discipline, because it's only getting harder to sit on the sidelines. For example, when Dave Portnoy is screaming in your face about how he's crushing it with Tesla stock, right? Right, yeah, absolutely. This, this FOMO rally is, is a testament, yeah, exactly. Back to your earlier comment about George, the George Soros's, the Stan Druckenmiller's, the, the traders of the world, like that's just, you know, that's not our cup of tea and that's totally fine. There's a ton of different ways to skin a cat. But back to your point though, if you wanna be a long-term investor, your best advantage is discipline and having the patience to wait to let those those returns accrue to the capital over time. I mean, I, even even Dr. Wesley Gray has a great line, and, and, and you know he he is a you know a true quant, but he always talks about real estate being a great wealth creating engine. And and his his line about real estate is that real estate people make money because they hate to pay taxes more than they like to make money, so they just stay in the asset forever, you know, through through thick and thin, through through COVID or anything else. And by virtue of that, you know, real estate is, is a great wealth producing engine, and it also combines a lot of the things that the tools that John Malone used in the form of leverage, in the form of great returns on the commercial capital. So I just think 
I think that John Malone, in terms of being a, in a lot of ways, that the real estate outsider, even though he was in telecommunications or, or media, he was using the same tools that real estate investors have used for 200 years in order to extract wealth. So we've talked about John Malone. We've talked about Will Thorndike. We've talked about Warren Buffett. Who else have you learned the most from in terms of famous and well-known or maybe maybe obscure investors besides those three? So you know, Henry Singleton is, is another person that, that I read. It's, it's the first chapter of The Outsiders. He's like the the conical iconoclast, he you know never put out an, an, an earnings report or anything else. I mean, really, really incredible investor. And his company was, was uh, Teledyne. Excellent capital allocator. Like I, I think I mentioned previously, bought back over 40% of his stock. And, and also, I think, was one of the few operators that could, could play it in two different ways. So when he started off, there was the, the conglomeration boom, right? So he was operating in the late 60s and then early 1970s, where Nifty 50, there was big, big gains to be held by being a conglomerator um, and then buying additional businesses. So he issued a, a whopping percentage of his stock in those first few years as he did all of these deals. And then he basically bought it all back. So when his, when his stock was overvalued, he issued stock. And then when his stock became undervalued in the, when con- conglomerates were, were unfairly maligned, he took advantage of that by virtue of buying back the stock. And you know, in many different purchases, bought back a huge percentage of, of the stock. And like I said, in, in different deals, bought back over 40%. And then over his entire tenure from the I think 1960, 1972, excuse me, until he left uh, in the late 1980s, he had bought back over 90% of the stock overall. So it was really a phenomenal um, entrepreneur, great engineer um, also. There's sort of like an interesting engineering iconoclast lilt to a lot of a lot of Will's investors. Another, you know, Brent B. Shore, he doesn't overcomplicate things. I've, I've talked to him about different different deals and, and people in, in New York that are doing deals and he says, I, I don't know 80% of what they do all day, you know, which, which I think is, is a great it's a great thing to keep in mind and, and a great thing to keep simple um, as, as I can overcomplicate things. I think of, of my client base too is, is really having their own secret sauce. You know, I'm really lucky to work with Capital Technologies. I do think that they're one of the most interesting companies that I work with. And their whole goal is to create a, a software that solves the capital allocation problem. Um, so we could talk more about that, but I do think that Blair Silverberg is a really interesting person that I've gotten the chance to know. Initially, he was running his own alternative debt fund, which is how I got to know him. And we ultimately, decided not to do a deal, but we both came away thinking that we were really smart. So I don't, I mean, the, the great part is about running legal scale. I get to work with phenomenal investors. And then I think it was Nathan Reed that said that he learned a lot from watching people make crazy mistakes. I've learned a lot from people making good deals and, and not overcomplicating things. And so I, you know, I've, I've been lucky to, to get to know every investor that I have, even people w- within my hometown, like Rob Miracle, were really, um, who, who runs a lot of triple net warehouse development builds. Um, he, I think of him as a really phenomenal investor. Well, I'll link to some of those some of those resources that you talked about, some of the books, some of the, just some links that will, will give people more of a flavor for what some of those guys' strategies were and, and what their backgrounds were. You mentioned legal scale. So let's transition from real estate slash cell towers. Let's get into the legal side of things. So in your day-to-day operation of legal scale. What's a day in the life like for Neil? So if if Warren Buffett is getting in and steering the ship each day, I'm, I'm probably getting in and just getting assailed by work. But uh, you know, it's it's <laughs> it's um it really is pretty phenomenal. The day to day really looks like you know just looking at different deals that, that our clients are putting together and they're trying to, to add value um, in the form of making sure that they're getting market covenants in their documents and each each covenant is just a promise between the lender and, and the borrower for the for the borrower not to do certain endeavors. We never want those to be overly tight or to, to bind the borrower's hands, but we do want to 
make sure that the lenders have sufficient certainty behind the each loan that they're making. Beyond that, you know, we also just want all of our clients are, are phenomenal business people that, that certainly don't need my Excel modeling skills or anything like that. But we, I do try to think strategically about around just negotiation and, and helping our clients get the best possible results. It is a venture debt law firm, so we look at a lot of private credit and venture debt deals. And it's if you you know do anything long enough, you get you get you know decently good at it. And so I, I think that the, the the benefit for our clients is that we're in a relatively new niche. We've seen companies. In, in relatively uh, interesting spots, um, and, and you know, we, we didn't, I think it's worked directly on uh, a deal involving a company, Thrasio. But but Thras.io is, is an interesting company that is pursuing a, mo- a model of acquiring Amazon third-party resellers at you know two x EBITDA, um, and and they actually just put together a Series C two um, that was announced this week for over a at a, for over a, a billion dollar valuation. So they're the fastest unicorn ever, and it's all in terms of deploying capital. Um, I, I do I think of if I could make Outsiders, you know, 2.1, I would include uh, Josh Silverstein and, and Thrasio in, in, in that list of really interesting companies that are deploying capital at phenomenal cash and cash returns. So you are representing the lenders? The lender, often like they look sort of like a, a fintech company or, and they're lending a lot to early stage businesses that are, it, it's, it's a process of underwriting the underwriters, right? So a lot of times they're creating credit facilities for these companies. And then whether it's a company that's acquiring other businesses or it's a company that's you know creating loan products, and then the, those loans are part of the collateral base. It's our clients engage in that sort of making sure that they have a good underwriting manual, that they you know can trust that they're going to deploy the capital strategically and, and in an accretive fashion. And then my work is really just making sure that those underwriting manuals and other tenants are adhered to, and that while we're not trying to tie the borrower's hands, that the creditors are in a good position and, and can just have sufficient certainty around. Those, those capital flows. Well, let's, okay, so let's dig into that because typically the, the the venture space has been dominated by equity only players with certain liquidation preferences, meaning if something goes south, they get their money back first, preferred equity. And there's a pref rate, right? Right, right. With, the, with typically there's a rate of return attached to that. So a preferred uh, equity hurdle, but the venture, but venture debt, talk about how is that structured? Who takes it? Why do they take it? Just talk a little bit about it and maybe how it's different than like a typical bank loan. That, that's a, This is a really great question. So so one, a lot of the clients that, or a lot of the prospective borrowers that our clients are working with are would not qualify for traditional bank loans short of like an SBA loan or, or something else. And a lot of times those can, it's easier to get an SBA loan. Um, well, right now the, the SBA, SBA environment is pretty interesting with, with PPP and everything else, PPP, EIDL. But as applied to, as applied to these businesses, they often don't qualify for bank debt because they're they're just starting out and, and they might be creating the credit facilities for, for the first time. And so, and they might get larger credit facilities than you can get from the SBA or, or from a bank, especially given the asset ba- base that these that these clients have or these prospective these prospective borrowers have. By asset base, what do you mean? So a lot of so with respect, so like let's say that you're working with a company like that's acquiring Amazon third-party resellers. The asset base for that business is each of the merchants that you're acquiring, right? So if if I'm giving my client a typically a, a first priority lien over all of the and then over this underwriter that's that's then buying all of these businesses. And so long as that operating business or so long as that acquiring business is acquiring these targets strategically, that can be accretive to the collateral of of the the credit facility that, that we're creating. Right. So if we give them ten million dollars and then they they go out and acquire twenty five hundred thousand dollar Amazon thirty Amazon third party resellers. Then, if there's any sort of distress events, we can take control of that operating business 
and one, take control of the cash and other assets that are relatively easily sold. But then you could also take control of the, the eligible merchants and you could sell those to Thrasio or another business, right? So, so there are levers that allow them to, to treat what's being acquired like an asset and a saleable asset, much like you would for, for a real estate project with a mortgage. Right, right. Because typically a bank loan is, is going to be secured by something that's hard, that's tangible, that's physical. What you're describing is a little bit more cash flow based. Oh, yeah, that's certainly a fair characterization. More cash flow based, earlier stage, often with that's it's, it's not like a truck or something that, that's easily sold or that there's a Kelly Blue Book valuation for. Um, so it's 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 interesting. You know, so our clients are going through a lot of, of a process of underwriting the underwriters. Um, and, and, and that's really a matter of just making sure that that when they when they're p- picking up the asset that they're acquiring that Amazon three, third party reseller at 2x EBITDA, not 4x. Because then, because that additional money would go out the door, and then they wouldn't have the same sort of uh, collateralization that they would otherwise, right? And so, you're absolutely right that, that this is a lot more like a, a cash flow based loan. And one other part of that too is like like a SVB or especially like a, a WTI. These loan facilities also have often have warrant sweeteners attached, and so you know somewhere between call it three and and even ten percent of the company for this initial credit facility could be obtained by virtue of extending the credit facility in the first instance. And the benefit for the companies is that they qualify for debt that they wouldn't otherwise qualify for, or they could reduce the interest rates assigned to that credit facility. And then the benefit for the our client is that they get a substantial portion of the upside. And so those lenders can ride along with, with the equity and, and participate in those returns. Got it. So, so there is a probably a typically higher interest rate that's associated with this cash flow lender, but but also some sort of equity participation as well. So it's it's it sounds like it's similar to sort of like mezzanine debt, but specific to the venture space. It's well, mezzanine debt often implies it, it comes from you know mezzo the, the Italian word for, for in the middle, right? So it's not mezzanine debt in terms of where it's participation in the capital stack. It's still senior, right? We have a first lien, but it's so if if you were to if you were to imagine a business that had ten million dollars of of cars or, or trucks, like it's it's very easy to to tranche out and say, okay, here's what the first here's what the first lien gets, and that's often going to be bank debt, which will be you know the, the lowest risk, the the lowest the lowest return as well, right? Because those are uh, commensurate. And then there will be a at the very bottom, the residual equity holder, often the founders and other investors that are all along for the ride. And then in the middle, there will be mezzanine debt that often has a higher interest rate, is subordinated fully to the to the senior debt, but gets an equity sweetener and a higher interest rate. The, the benefit for, for us is that the that $10 million is a lot squishier for these companies for, for the same reason that you outlined. It's a cash flow based loan. It's, it's an earlier stage company. But the biggest benefit is that even though that's squishier, we can often participate like mezzanine debt in terms of the economics, but often get a first lien position. And so by virtue of that and, and by virtue of where the, the client sits in the capital structure, it can often be accretive to, to lend at these rates. And, and again, it's it's lending to earlier stage businesses. So it's 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 very interesting space, and I think it's one that's probably one of the more inefficient spots of the market. So it's going to be interesting for companies like like Capital Technologies to help to underwrite these operating businesses in the first instance, perform scenario analysis to understand, to make it look a lot more like that truck loan works, right, in terms of hard assets. And then, okay, if if COVID happens, maybe the food delivery company is worth more or less, and we can exactly understand how our first you know, obligation performs. Talk a little bit about capital technologies and what they're after in this space as it pertains to what you're working on. Sure. So, you know, I, I, like I said, it, it's run by um, a really phenomenal entrepreneur, Claire Silverberg, um, and, and we met when I was running Faraday Partners. There, 
the overall goal is to op underwrite operating businesses to the same certainty as you would, you know, a, a single tenant triple net lease, you know, CVS space that has a you know, 30 year leasehold interest on it. And that, that's a tough endeavor, right? But just like, like those very, very well-known and sort of like solved science facilities look like, the, the goal would be to take these much squishier, much harder under, understand operating businesses and get that same level of certainty. And that's an incredibly heavy lift, you know, that, that's required, I think, you know, at least $15 million of, of deployed capital so far. But their, their whole goal is to use connectors to immediately underwrite a business. So if a company uses QuickBooks, Plaid, uh, Shopify, other connectors, they can take in that information and immediately convert that into effectively a business's financial statements in order to underwrite them. They can show graphs that show how revenue has improved over time to help to see the visibility of revenue, you know, how, how recurring is it? Um, and then second, what's the incremental returns to capital invested? And then from there, you can really sort of understand for these operating businesses, what's it like to be a lender to them? What's it like to be an investor to them? And so there are three sort of, you know, there's a data, data analytics piece, which is, which is really hard and I think is, is the, the core of, of the overall strategy. They're also a principal investor. So we've put together some, some uh, credit facilities for them, uh, including, including one to a really, really excellent uh, food delivery business out, out in the Midwest. And then the last component is a syndication piece, which is sort of, sort of up and running. So now that we've created these facilities for capital, pushing them out to, to broader investors so that they could participate in private credit um, without a back office or anything else. So, so approaching family offices, major lenders in order to recruit their capital and then blast it out to businesses that are deploying it really intelligently. So a fun rise, but for venture debt. Yeah, I, I think it's a good, you know, like Fundrise, Yield Street, like there's, there's a lot of different uh, competitors, but the the biggest the biggest delta will be this capital machine that they're creating and the capacity to immediately connect your statements of record, um, which, are, which are online and, and cloud-based in order to immediately pull a, a credit profile. I'm going to connect Faraday's financial statements to it to see what comes out, but where we don't, I, I use QuickBooks, but we don't have Plaid or anything else because it's in South America. Um, so it, it's, but it, it's, it's an interesting, it's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating business. Um, the broader team there is also super, super sophisticated. Uh, you know, Chaba, uh, the company's president is phenomenal. Emily Stevens was, you know, one of the top legal personnel at Oak Tree and she joins Capital. Um, you know, really just blown away by the broader team. And they're thinking about the, the mission, what I, what Capital's overall ethos and, and something that I really do subscribe to and, and I think helps my clients generally um, is that if, if you looked at business, you know, not the top, top tier businesses, not, not the, the um, what's the blue, the, the, the blue chips, you know, the, the blue chip companies of the 1970s, but, but for companies that were off the run, they really couldn't get debt or credit, you know, in, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, until a guy, Mike Milken came along um, and extended credit to them in the form of, of high yield or junk bonds. And I think that this is like the same sort of opportunity where a lot of venture, a lot of venture companies right now or emerging growth companies are frankly under levered. And, you know, somewhere between six and 8% of the overall capital that these companies have is in the form of debt. And that looks relatively low, especially for that recurring revenue, $10 million SaaS business that can certainly support more leverage to that. And so I think that the opportunity here is not unlike the high yield space where we have a lot of room to run in the form of companies getting cheaper access to debt and then being able to deploy it into their sales and marketing expenditure, their inventory or anything else in order to create additional value for shareholders. And so I think that that's, that dynamic will play out probably in a very different way than Mike Milken and, and the corporate raiders that, that he funded. Let's but, hope so. You know, yeah, exactly. Right. Like that, that was like, yeah, that was, or especially in the, in the form of, um, 
of all of the indictments that came that came after that. But 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 honestly, and, and more seriously, like I do think that there, if I were a founder with a really good recurring revenue business, I would I'd want to follow Will's Will's playbook. And until I don't know the last few years, it's it's been hard to to raise that right, and and hard to do anything besides losing yourself with equity. Um, and to have a dilution light or dilution free facility that allows you to do that really creates. I mean, sometimes the the increase in wealth for shareholders upon exit can be you know four or even nine x what it would be otherwise because there's much just so much less dilution. Well, I was I was just about to ask you why would a borrower take this source of funding versus just going and raising an equity round, but you just answered it from a dilution standpoint. Is there a lot of negotiation between the 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 creditors? and the borrowers in this type of transaction? Like, is it similar to a venture equity raise? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, well, I actually think that venture, I think venture equity is because of safes and other documents. One, a little bit easier on the diligence front, honestly, and probably a little bit less bespoke than creating credit facilities. Um, it's probably job, it's probably job uh, security for, for me and my firm. But the one benefit is uh, for, for, for me and, and something that we have to navigate around for our clients is that unlike equity, there's no fiduciary responsibilities owed to creditors generally, right? And so a lot of it is based on contract. So actually, these these credit facilities are harder to to negotiate. Um, they're often sort of one-offs because if you're acquiring Amazon resellers or um, another what's what's an what's an interesting business recently, like uh, you know if if or or if, if you're doing food delivery, right? Like those are are two very different levers to pull in order to create value. And you want to make sure that you key into to the documents to make sure that they're deploying capital well. And, and if they aren't, that you could either reduce your commitments or or you know, call of events of default if, if absolutely necessary. And so, you know, it's it's a fascinating time and it absolutely requires a lot of negotiation. But I think that even though it might be harder than the venture equity raise and that there will be more covenants with it, um, you know, there's a great interview that maybe you could, you could link to where Steve Wynn talks about his first meeting with Mike Milken. It's really, it's, I think it's like a nine minute video and absolutely worth the uh, listener's time. But he talks about Mike Milken saying, look, it's not going to be easy. You're going to be subject to additional covenants and you're not going to be able to hit home runs in, in the same way that you were with your first casino. But because you're taking on debt and if you can just focus on hitting base hits, you're going to end up far wealthier than you would otherwise. Um, and I think that the pitch is, is a lot the same to businesses right now. You know, it might not be Steve Wynn taking over casinos, but for these operators, they if you have... Let me, first, let me say it's not right for every business, right? So if you're doing a lot of R&D, if you haven't hit a re- repeatable revenue model, um, and if you think that you might pivot, it's not it's not going to be a great facility because you want to have equity. You want to have something a fixed that's proven. schedule. Exactly. You want to have something that's proven. That, that's I, I could use you on all my calls because I, I perseverate too long, but that's that's a great summary. Um, like, and I'll say like the if you have something that's proven, if you have a repeatable model, and if you're if you're reliably creating value through that model, it can really be a phenomenal way to take on some debt um, in addition to the equity that, that you've already raised and then deploy that typically at higher rates of return than, than you would otherwise. And you could just target the parts of the model that are real and working and then from there more, more cheaply scale and get to and hit, you know, increase your runway, uh, hit additional milestones and create a phenomenal business without heavily diluting yourself. Who else do you follow in this space? I'm not familiar with it really much at all, but it's super interesting because, you know, to your earlier point, it's a very early stage and a nascent sort of asset class. Upper Upper 90 is a phenomenal company uh, and, and they're, they're a great lender. Uh, Alex Rita and Billy Libby are, I think, really phenomenal entrepreneurs that have great backgrounds. Alex Rita's background too in venture in, in rather distressed debt, I think was an interesting cadre 
into this into this you know venture lending space. CoVenture is is a really really I mean just a phenomenal company. They've they've been on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast before. I've gotten the opportunity to to meet Ali Hamed and Subnit Singh in different capacities. Um, at actually Brent B. Shores, uh, when, when it, at, at the Capital Camp, which was unfortunately postponed this year. But I, you know, I think of these as really really excellent operators. Both of them have their own. Everybody has their own secret sauce, right? So just like Capital Technologies focuses on the technology side. I mean, CoVenture really focuses on being keyed into the point of sale, and they've done really phenomenal deals around, I think it was like Network One and other loans where they you know, just try to make sure that they have c- control to the to point of sale. And then because of that, they have you know the first draw from the company's revenues, which helps to re- reduce the risk that, of, of non-payment. But it's, it's just a phenomenal space. I mean, when you think about like companies like, like even Amazon now is, is providing some debt to its own Amazon third-party resellers. And what I think about all the time, and I think what, what Ali has even mentioned before is, I mean, think about if, if you're Amazon and you're providing loans to Amazon third-party resellers, there's a really interesting remedy, which isn't immediately obvious, but let's say that I provided, you know, a million dollars to a mom and pop that's maybe selling diapers in, in Dubuque, Iowa or something. If they're doing, you know, 500,000 or a million a year and that starts to fall off, well, I can, as Amazon, I control the platform. And if my own debtors aren't paying me back in, in real time, I can t- take control of the company and not only just exercise all the control of the collateral that, that Amazon typically would, but I could also just promote this this diaper company, right? And so, so that they their revenues increase and that they can pay me back, right? So the the, value, the points of value extraction for a company like Amazon are just really off the charts. And you can think about scenarios where even lenders that don't control a platform can can use the same tools in order to ensure repayment, especially for more nascent businesses. So there's just it's an it's it's like I said, I think it's one of the most inefficient markets out there right now. And I do think that there's a lot of room to run in terms of businesses taking on this taking on value and just like just like the you know junk bonds of old or, or fallen angels of old, you know, really getting a cheap source of capital that's coming online now for the first time. What do you hope to uh, achieve with legal scale? What's your vision? Well, you know, I started legal vision for a few reasons. One was that I liked the practice of law and I, I thought I had like an interesting model to take to our clients. Um, and the it was capital light, which is nice, right? So instead of just having a lot of conversations from, from investors to raise capital, I, it was a capital light opportunity where I've been able to pursue more endeavors and, and, and buy more businesses from on, on the Faraday part, right? So one is just sort of extracting value from one and then, and then investing it within another, right? The, I think even though debt might be one of the cheapest tools for a company to raise money, the, probably the absolute best is just return, retained earnings or retained cash flow that's redeployed within other opportunities. And then the, the, the second is the, overall, I really like to build a disruptive product that allows us to, you know, provide a lot of the same services that a Davis Polk or another large law firm can provide. I think that we're going to be much more specialized in terms of focus on venture debt, but I, you know, I think that I would love to hire a lot of the mid-level attorneys that I've known from Cornell Law School um, and put them to work to create value for our clients. You know, we, we absolutely want to grow. We want to offer different services, including tax, because right now the, the biggest deficit is that we can't really provide the same suite of tax advice as a Davis Polk, and and that's you know after tax profits is, is the whole point of John Malone's um, you know uh, model or financial model. So I think that you know we, we want to just continue to service our clients, continue to provide a disruptive product that, you know, as, as uh, Jeff Bezos says, profit margin, your profit margin is my opportunity. Law firms have a very big profit margin, so there's a lot of opportunity there for us to go after. So from a high level, I love this model of young entrepreneurs taking a service business because to your point, it's capital light. You're investing your time for excess cash flow that you can then redeploy into maybe more passive income generating streams. Right. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, so even as, as applied, if, if you were wanting to run a 
search fund. And I know something we haven't gotten as much time to talk about as, as I want, because we could, we could go on for three hours, but your listeners would, would, would lose interest. Like the, your apps, even just doing a self-funded search and being able to own a greater percentage of what you're building, I think is always a great, um, you know, approach. And I do think that a lot of, I mean, the best part of legal scale for, for me and, and now a Faraday too, is that we, I own hundred um, percent. And, and there is a, you know, there, there, there is a benefit to, to that and just not spending as much time on, on governance or other issues that, that arise. So, yeah. You know, I, well, I, you have nobody to yeah. answer to. I mean, yeah, exactly. and it may be slower from, it may be slightly slower up front in, in, in terms of, okay, you're not raising a ton of money or you're not deploying a lot of capital. But over time, if you're able to snowball that and you have nobody to answer to, I mean, the, your track record speaks for you. Sure, you can go raise, raise capital if you want, or you can continue to, you know, answer to you and you alone. Exactly, right? And it, it, just, it, it gives me more optionality, which it, and there's no doubt. And I also just, I really relish the practice, practice of law. And there's probably an opportunity, especially within the venture debt space, where we could vertically integrate and then go into venture debt deals ourselves um, and then use use our back end in order to to reduce the cost of acquisition in the form of, of you know, legal fees uh, for ourselves too. You know, so just have an in-house law firm that helps you know, Faraday 2.0, um, you know, deploy money into private debt deals. Let's move on to the final questions. What personal values or beliefs are most important to you and how do they inform your day-to-day business? So, you know, the, the personal values that, that are most important to me um, are, for, first and foremost, I, I really love Charlie Munger's rule of if you want if, if to be, if you want to have a good partner, you should try to be one first. I always think about that, right? Because in, in situations where I've thought that the value, a partner wasn't really treating me fairly, I've gone back and just determined that I've honestly have not been a great partner to that person myself in, in nine times out of 10, right? So the, his Midwestern logic of, you know, make sure that, that you yourself are a partner before be, be, before you know, targeting others or, or saying anything negative about somebody else or expecting more from somebody else is, I think something I, I often, often think about, it, it applies to the attorney-client relationship, it applies to the business partner relationship, and it applies to the, to the world more, more broadly. Another one for, for me is, we talked about Brent B. Shore a lot, but his no, his no a-hole rule, I think is a, is an excellent one. You know, he really at what was formerly adventures and is now permanent equity, which I think he's landed on a much better name. And one that was given to him by Patrick O'Shaughnessy actually in a podcast was the, uh, you know, o- overall idea was, you know, don't have a-holes within your organization because they will self-propagate, right? And a-holes will recruit a-holes. They'll turn other people that are into the, in the organization into, into meaner people or, or make, make them more defensive. So I think that that's, you know, there are so many people out there that are super, super intelligent, but ultimately make a culture of a place worse. And I think that, you know, that it is important to keep in mind that no matter how talented the person is, every company is a, is at least a tribe, if not a community. And, you know, Brent is, because of the size of the business he's building, has been really, really attuned to that. And he's also just, I mean, one, one last thing, um, you know, in addition to Will, Brent is just such a nice guy. You know, like I, I reached out to him, I, another cold email, he immediately got back to me. Um, he gave me some books to read about, he's, he's a very religious person. He gave me some books to read about, about religion. He gave me some books to read about you know, my business more broadly. I was in Uruguay and, and really needed to, to talk to somebody and, and Brent was there. And I, I just think that was really important. What advice would you give yourself before starting out as an entrepreneur? So I would think there's a great, I was once watching a great uh, podcast at the University of Wharton that had a number of entrepreneurs and one was actually an entrepreneur and value investor. And he talked about buying AIG stock. And he said, you know, I, I just... I'm really good at, at owning financials and AIG was a really tough financial to own, but I was able to withstand that risk. That, that was a, a risk that I could bear more easily than the rest of the market. And so I think that being an entrepreneur, even if you don't engage in any of the financial entrepreneurship that Benson and I do in the form of, of real estate or, or other or 
other investing. If, if you can think about the risks that you're most able to withstand, maybe it's, you know, temperament, maybe it's timing because you can, you know, you don't have to answer to any investors or LPs and you could just deploy your own capital yourself. I would just think about your, your, your legal structure, which is important and your governance, which is important, but, but more broadly, just your temperament. And then just think about which risks can you withstand? Benson, I, I would love to do an interview where I, where I interview you because it, it's, it's sort of, uh, I know that, that you can withstand and can analyze risks in a real estate context far better than I ever could, right? Because your Faraday was a real estate business, but one with, which was very attuned to niche. And so I think that um, like that is that is something that, that I, I understood the risk that I was able to withstand and that Will wanted to withstand it as well. And we got really specific with respect to that and that it really did help us when there was the inevitable downturn and the inevitable trouble on, on any given day. The other one that I always take back is, is Jim Collins, Good to Great, where he describes a career path as, or the, the ideal crew path is, is a Venn diagram of three concentric circles. Um, you know, what do you care about? What are you passionate about? What do you value? And what does the world value? And then what can you be the best of the world at, right? So if you find a place that's richly valued um, and you're one of the best in the world at, and then you're really passionate about it, and you can stay up that extra hour for, you're going to be, you know, u- uniquely uh, privileged. And, and it's, it's something where, you know, for, for people that, that listen to this podcast, Benton is one of the best readers of financial material that I've ever met. And we've had the opportunity to go through a lot of different um, financial letters together. And by virtue of that, we, we were able to uncover some, some investing principles that I've held dear to my heart. And, and so I, and, you know, so that was investing in something that I've always been super passionate about and I value highly. And then, you know, because of people like Benson, I've been able to, to increase my uh, circle of competence or, or more, more finally to my circle of competence. And so, you know, Jim Collins concentric circles was always a really important mental model to me. And one that, because of meeting people like Benton, I've been able to explore more broadly. What's one thing you would have done differently now that you're in this entrepreneurial journey? So um, I really appreciate that. Uh, it, Wayne Hunsinger, who, who built uh, Blockbuster and other companies, including AutoNation, uh, talked about, you know, you begin your business journey at 20. So this this idea of being almost a decade in, right? I'm, I'm 10 years old in, in the business sense or the business and investing sense. I really... I've been thinking about this a lot. Just it's actually just my birthday uh, this Monday, um, and so I've been thinking about how to you know continue to explore being an investor and, and, and what I would change. The the honest truth is that I actually like what I do a lot, and I've been extremely lucky. Um, the biggest sources of luck have nothing to do with business or investing or, or Warren Buffett. Um, one just being born to excellent parents, having an amazing sister, and then finding an amazing wife at Cornell and hanging on to her for for dear life have all been extremely, extremely important and far more important than any business uh, principle. But then beyond that, and sort of associated with that, I probably would have, should have maybe read a little bit less, or in addition to reading, reached out to more investors. Like I said, you know, Brent and, and Will were enormous, enormously important to my, to my life. Even people like Bill Ackman, I was able to reach out to, um, and, and I was watching early Berkshire Hathaway clips from like the very, very early 1990s. And it's kind of amazing. Bill Ackman is there at 25 years old. You know, it was like 94? 94, yeah. I, I, I sent you that clip. And so, you know, I, I sent that to to Bill Ackman, who is, by all accounts, an investing all-star. And, you know, he's, he's doing super interesting things now um, in the form of, of the, the unicorn fund that he's raising and everything else. I, I, sh- I should have developed these relationships more early. People like, like, like you as well. I think that's actually made the investing journey richer and deeper, more rewarding. And honestly, too, it's just nice to get out of your head for a second and just and just talk to other people about what, what you're thinking about. One other person that is not an investor himself, but was super nice and actually had lunch with me on my 26th birthday was uh, Matt Levine, um, who is, is a great writer for Bloomberg. My wife actually uh, reached out to him and organized 
a birthday lunch that, and that was my present that year. Um, we were both had school loans and everything else. So it was, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal gift. And, um, you know, he spent two and a half hours with me. We talked about a lot of articles. We talked about what he would work on next. And that's just been, um, you know, I, I still write him emails when I read an interesting column. Um, so I, yeah, it, it, I, I think that having less parasocial relationships, you're just reading about investors and approaching them more, even if you get, even if you write that email and it doesn't go through like the email for, for Will if in, in the other world where Will decided not to reach out to an intrepid 26 year old, it's still great because it helps put your ideas to paper. And then you'll be more inclined to reach out to that Benton Moss that's putting together a great newsletter. And I, and I think that that applies more broadly too for people that are, you know, if, if you're really into real estate or if you're really into art, you know, I think that that's just having these relationships and exploring similar interests with, with, with really interesting people from different backgrounds is phenomenal, you know? And, and then because of you, I got to read about, you know, Big League Advance and other you know, companies that, that are rather other funds that I had no, I wouldn't, wouldn't have otherwise been privy to. You can't invest in or operate in the venture debt or cell tower space anymore. What industry or asset class do you pivot to and why? So like Charlie Munger, I mean, I do think that SaaS businesses and recurring revenue businesses are, you know, the, the cable industries of, of our time. I mean, I do think of those as really great wealth generating machines. I mean, I would say, you know, rolling up vertical market software companies like Subneet Singh is doing with Terra Holdings or Mark Leonard is doing with Constellation Software seems to be a great wealth creation engine. Um, you know, on the flip side, my, buying Amazon third-party resellers at 2x EBITDA is also a great, you know, a, a great methodology to, to extract wealth. I mean, I, I think for myself personally, I'd probably opt for the former of the vertical market business just because there's, you might have to buy it for a higher multiple, but it's, it's probably a, a higher quality, higher revenue visibility stream. So it probably ties into what Will talked about in, in a little bit of a different way. But I mean, for myself, it's just going to a rock concert versus a ballet, right? It's just, it's just something I'm, I'm more attuned to. Um, and it's, it probably ties up with my rest better and my, my adoration of John Malone. What's the biggest challenge personally and professionally and how are you attempting to tackle it? So the, the biggest challenge is always allocating time. You know, like even, even when we're doing this podcast, it, it comes at the expense of eating a timely dinner with, with my wife, um, but it's, that's okay. And, and she's, she's working right next to me. Um, but so in any event, allocating time is, is something that's hard. And especially as I, I, I don't have any kids, I have no other obligations besides, you know, work, working, working alongside my wife. Um, I do think about that a, a lot, especially because at a point when I have kids, um, it's going to be harder to, to allocate, you know, 20 hours a day when I'm really involved in a project or a credit agreement. And so what I've tried to do, um, and it's just something I'm, I'm probably started within the last three years, probably starting with, with Faraday, um, and then going into the, the legal scale side right now, because we, we actually took on three interns this year, which was, which is really interesting. Um, so it's, it's myself and then three interns, uh, which is, which is phenomenal. Um, I want to train people that are purely better than me, right? First and foremost, which is, which is easy to do. That's a very low hurdle. Um, especially when it, I, I often talk to my wife about, my wife is also a corporate lawyer. Um, and it's, she sometimes jokes that it's a good thing I'm a practicing lawyer because I need to practice. Um, but <laughs> in any event, uh, training people that are better than me and can become leaders that train other people, I think has the same effects um, in compounding. When, when you're training a leader that will then train three other people to become leaders, over the course of years, that becomes a really, really powerful compounding machine and sort of a human capital compounding machine in the same way that Buffett's built a, uh, you know, a, a financial capital compounding machine. So this is trying, I'm trying to overcome it, but it's still... It's funny because just like, you know, investing takes away some small financial gain in the short term for a better gain in the long term. When you're training people, it also requires a, an investment in, in time and money now um, in order to have something later on. So I'd be really lucky if all of our interns joined LegalScale eventually. I think that they'll have a number of amazing offers from huge 
law firms, um, and, and hopefully they, they don't want to warrant in the form of legal scale eventually in order to sign back on. But I'm really lucky, um, and, I, and I do think that training people better than me will, will have compounding effects later on. How can somebody listening to the podcast add value to you or your businesses? So as maybe this, this podcast with, with Benson might run a little bit longer than all the other, other podcasts, at least so far, and certainly longer than one with Ray Dalio, uh, which I'm calling year ends 2020. In, but the key is to really just talk to me. I mean, I, I am absolutely approachable. You could reach out to me at, at neilphilipodonnell at gmail.com or uh, neil at legalscalellp.com. Um, and also just always feel free to reach out. I am super interested in a huge number of different businesses. And even when I, I don't know a lot of what's, what's, what's going on. I'm, I'm happy to talk to people. Warren Buffett has this whole thing about, um, you know, if a smart person talks to a monkey, so often the smart person walks away uh, smarter just by virtue of talking through their, their thought process and talking through their, their, their you know, decision process and what they're, what they're really thinking about, just putting that, expressing that out loud makes them smarter. And so I'm really happy to be somebody's monkey and just, you know, really, really take on all of those you know, key ideas. And even if I don't immediately grasp it, you know, just to have those really rewarding relationships. Like I said previously, meeting you, Benson, was extremely powerful within my life. And it's great to just know that even if you don't align in the same way that, that we have, investing can really just be a, a really lonely road. I mean, it can be a lot of staying up late and, and reading about, you know, reading Warren Buffett shareholder letters at 3 a.m. or anything else. And if you know that somebody else is, is out there doing the same thing at the same time, it's 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 a really powerful way to, to solve that loneliness. Neil, man, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. And we will have to do this again soon. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, go to circleofcompetence.co. That's circleofcompetence.co to sign up for my weekly podcast emails, as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.